Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. I'm Britt Long, and I'm joined by Manny Singh. Today's podcast covers three great posts, the sick meningitis patient, ultrasound for the diagnosis of pneumoperitoneum, and cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Our first post today, published on October 7, 2019, is on managing the sick patient with meningitis. We are trained how to evaluate and treat the patient with suspected meningitis, but the sick meningitis patient is challenging. These patients will typically report at least one of the classic symptoms of meningitis, fever, neck stiffness, or headache, and also have severe myalgias in nearly all reported cases. These patients will also have the classic petechial purpuric rash on presentation only 50% of the time. On exam, these patients may also present with pallor and modeling up to 70% of the time, which should be regarded as an indication of severe systemic illness. The most deadly form of skin involvement secondary meningococcal infection is purpural fulminance, an acquired, often fatal coagulopathy characterized by extensive skin involvement, which rapidly progresses to skin necrosis with DIC. These patients need resuscitation and may benefit from fresh frozen plasma and or protein C concentrate. Protein C concentrate may help in these patients to help restore the balance of coagulation and anticoagulation factors which have been deranged in DIC. Two clinical trials have been conducted on a small population of patients with meningococcal meningitis, which have been associated with correctional coagulopathy without adverse side effects, as well as reducing the rate of amputation in these patients. If the patient has soft tissue or skin necrosis on exam, consultation with general surgery is recommended, as these patients may need debridement, fasciotomy, and or amputation. DIC and coagulopathy that occurs secondary to severe septicemia can lead to thrombosis and severe hemorrhage. Patients may require aggressive volume expansion with crystalloids or blood products and intervention according to the specific organ involved. Another significant complication is Waterhouse-Friedrichsen syndrome. Patients with this will develop severe hypotension and shock secondary to adrenal failure from hemorrhage caused by DIC. These patients can present with obtundation, hypotension, hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, and hyperkalemia. You need to identify and correct any metabolic abnormalities and initiate vasopressors with norepinephrine being the initial vasopressor of choice. These patients also need stress-dose steroids, most commonly hydrocortisone. Two potentially life-threatening complications include seizures and elevated intracranial pressure. While in previous discussions, shock and purpura were associated with Neisseria meningitis, neurological complications are associated with strep pneumor or pneumococcal meningitis. Three separate clinical features are associated with adverse outcomes, such as death and permanent neurological deficits at discharge. One, hypotension. Two, altered mental status. And three, seizures. Seizures and meningitis are thought to be secondary to inflammatory changes and cytotoxic effects of disease process in brain parenchyma. Before neurological symptoms become present, dexamethasone therapy should be administered to all patients early in the disease course with or before the initial IV antibiotics. Although dexamethasone has been primarily shown to be efficacious only in patients with pneumococcal meningitis, it is still recommended upon clinical suspicion of bacterial meningitis and can be either be continued or discontinued as in an inpatient. The IDSA recommends dexamethasone at 0.15 mg per keg every 6 hours for 4 days. Elevated ICP is our final complication. It can be subtle, like mild confusion, isolated cranial nerve palsy, and papilledema, or severe symptoms such as significant obtundation, a non-reactive pupil, and bradycardia with hypertension. 
Once you've identified elevated ICP, time is of the essence as it can progress quickly to herniation and or death. In these patients, forgo the LP in the critically ill and administer antibiotics and steroids. If the patient's stable, a head CT may identify other causes of altered mental status. Dexamethasone can reduce ICP through reduction in inflammation as well as increase vascular perfusion. Make sure to increase the MAP with intravenous fluids and vasopressors. By lowering the ICP and increasing the MAP, you're in effect increasing the cerebral perfusion pressure. You can also utilize bedside ocular ultrasound to assess for elevated ICP. Measurements of the optic nerve sheath diameter should be taken 3 millimeters posterior to the globe. The diameter at this position should be measured twice, and if the average is greater than 5 millimeters, think elevated ICP. Don't forget the basics when it comes to managing elevated ICP in the ED. First, elevate the head of the bed to at least 30 degrees and provide analgesia. You can use either hypertonic saline or mannitol, though hypertonic saline is more commonly used in many institutions and can also function as a resuscitation fluid. Should intubation be necessary, the most experienced physician should intubate. Our next post published on September 24, 2019 is on using ultrasound for diagnosing pneumoperitoneum. Pneumoperitoneum can be seen on ultrasound by two clear signs. The air within the peritoneal space that rises and causes an enhanced peritoneal stripe sign and in the setting of large amounts of free air, the ultrasound operator can visualize reverberation artifacts deep to the peritoneal stripe, similar to A-lines seen in the normal lung tissues. You can pretty much think of this as A-lines in the abdomen. Other signs to consider include looking for comet tail artifacts, which are echoes caused by reflections of highly reflective interfaces or within a highly reflective object. These internal reflections cascade downwards or in the direction of the ultrasound waves and dissipate with increased depth. Let's also mention a quick note on gas within the lumen of the bowel. It flows just like stool, so as a bowel peristalsis, the gas will conform to its container. In general, we know that gas is horrible for ultrasound, as sound waves do not particularly like traveling through it. This results in shadowing being left behind in the gas, which will change in the position as the bowel contracts and relaxes. One thing to keep in mind is that bowel filled with gas can also result in reverberation artifact or A-lines. So what can you look for to improve likelihood you assess correctly for free air? First, the reflections of intraluminal gas will change as the bowel contracts and relaxes. Secondly, the reflections of reverberation artifact occur at equidistant points of the image starting from the transducer to the disrupted gas soft tissue interface. Therefore, if the reflections start deeper in the abdomen as opposed to right near the parietal peritoneum interface with soft tissue organs, then it is likely intraluminal in origin. You may be asking yourself, why ultrasound? Pneumoperitoneum is seen most commonly in cases of perforated hollow viscous, penetrating abdominal injury, infection with gas-forming organisms, and spontaneous pneumoperitoneum. When suspected, plain upright posterior anterior radiographs were the first imaging modalities used, as they were considered the most sensitive. However, the sensitivity and specificity range all over the map. The sensitivity and specificity for pneumoperitoneum by means of point-of-care ultrasound is 92% and 53% respectively. POCUS can be considered a reasonable adjunct to the diagnosis of pneumoperitoneum at the bedside during your initial assessment while waiting for confirmatory abdominal CT scan. When performing POCUS for intraperitoneal air, 
The operator can use either a linear or curved linear transducer. As with other ultrasound studies, transducers that produce higher frequency waves, such as a linear transducer, produce higher quality images but are limited at greater depths, and vice versa for the curved linear transducer. Selection of a transducer will largely be defined by the body habitus of the patient. Though usage of the linear transducer when available and appropriate is preferable, as it is more sensitive and produces higher quality images in the near field. The most likely obstacle encountered when performing this exam will be mistaking interluminal bowel gas for free air. It is prudent that the operator looks for peristalsis of the air as a marker of being within the bowel wall. One way to try and prevent this is by looking at the right upper quadrant. The anterior aspect of the liver is adjacent to the anterior abdominal wall and is not occupied by bowel. Therefore, if one sees an enhanced peritoneal stripe sign, with reverberation artifact, he or she can reasonably ensure that they are not mistaking bowel gas for free air. As a summary, ultrasonography findings of free air include 1. An enhanced peritoneal stripe sign, 2. Reverberation artifact, 3. Common tail reverberatory artifacts, and 4. Air bubbles and acidic fluid. Our last post focuses on treating cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, or CHS, published on September 30, 2019. Cannabis intoxication has been associated with anxiety, respiratory depression, and rarely cardiovascular events. Chronic users experience debilitating symptoms of cyclic nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Now, interestingly, cannabis is often used in cyclic vomiting syndrome and chemotherapy-related nausea and vomiting due to its antiemetic properties. However, hyperemesis as a result of chronic cannabis use has led to the recognition of a new disorder called CHS. Symptoms are often seen in chronic users with daily to near daily exposure to cannabis. Many users mistakenly increase consumption, assuming that intoxication will improve their symptoms. Thus far, only total cannabis cessation has been found to be effective for elimination of symptoms. Now there are a variety of mechanisms and supposed theories of why cannabis causes these symptoms but we don't have a clear explanation. Cannabinoid receptors CB1 and CB2 are the main receptors responsible for THC's effects on the body. Some authors think that cannabinoid receptors in the medulla allow for the antiemetic properties of THC, while the cannabinoid receptors in the GI tract are suspected to be the source of symptoms due to dysregulation. Others believe that the TRPV1 receptor, which is activated by marijuana, capsaicin, and heat, is altered with chronic marijuana use and responsible for CHS symptoms. While no diagnostic criteria currently exists for definitive cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome diagnosis, Sorensen et al. performed a systematic review and identified six major characteristics patients typically display. One, history of regular cannabis use. Two, cyclic nausea and vomiting. Three, generalized diffuse abdominal pain. Four, compulsive hot showers with symptom improvement. 5. Symptoms resolving with marijuana use cessation, and 6. A high prevalence in males. Often patients will experience three phases of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. The first phase is the pre-emetic or prodromal phase. This phase can last for months or years and is characterized by diffuse abdominal discomfort, feelings of agitation or stress, morning nausea, and fear of vomiting. It may also include autonomic symptoms like flushing, sweating, and increased thirst. Patients often have increased use of marijuana to treat these symptoms. The second phase is the hyperemetic phase. This phase lasts 24 to 48 hours and is characterized by multiple episodes of vomiting 
with a few severe abdominal pain. The last phase is a recovery phase, and this often begins with total cessation of cannabis. Often patients will require a bowel regimen, IV fluids, and electrolyte replacement. Keep in mind that CHS is a diagnosis of exclusion. If it's the patient's first presentation for nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain, other primary etiologies such as gallbladder or intestinal disease, intoxication, or surgical emergencies should be considered before you solidify a diagnosis of CHS. Patients with repeat presentations for nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain with chronic marijuana use, negative previous evaluations, and no history of diabetes should put CHS higher on your differential. The most common complications include electrolyte abnormalities, usually low potassium, dehydration, and even acute kidney injury, and muscle cramping or spasms. Life-threatening complications include pneumomediastinum from ruptured esophagus and electrolyte derangements causing seizures and arrhythmias. We're going to talk about some of the therapies, but keep in mind that research on the treatment of CHS is pretty limited. The first medication we're going to talk about is capsaicin. Capsaicin is the active ingredient of chili peppers and has been promoted as a treatment for CHS. Several case series and retrospective studies have shown benefits in adolescents and adults. The cream is applied to the fatty areas of the backs of the arms and abdomen, but typically just the abdomen, and it causes a sensation of warmth or burning. It comes in a variety of concentrations, ranging from 0.025% to 0.15%. One proposed mechanism behind the relief of capsaicin is its ability to transiently activate TRPV1, which is downregulated during chronic exposure to cannabinoids. Capsaicin is cheap, with few side effects, and is often successful for treating patients who have not received other medications for their CHS before. Just keep in mind to warn the patient about the burning sensation. Another medication class includes benzodiazepines. These act as GABA receptor agonists and thus inhibit neurotransmitters. The final class we're going to talk about is haloperidol or Haldol. Several case reports describe complete relief of symptoms from haloperidol. This drug is an antipsychotic with high affinity dopamine antagonism at a D2 receptor in the CNS. There's currently a randomized crossover clinical control trial, which is completing research comparing Haldol to Ondantatron. While research continues to be in its early stages, the early recognition of CHS and treatment can prevent costly workups, admissions, and the prolonged symptoms of patients suffering from this debilitating disease. That rounds out our summary of the key EM Docs posts. Thanks for joining us on our podcast today and stay tuned for our next episode. Feel free to comment on our site and let us know if you have any feedback. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.